Pound the Rock is brought to you by the Score Bet. That's right, we brought you the best sports media app. Now we're bringing you the best sports book and casino. Now live in Ontario, the Score Bet offers a safe and secure mobile sportsbook experience with both pregame and in-play markets. But best of all, it's integrated into the Score and our content to give you the easiest and most seamless sports betting experience. Download now on iOS and Android. Available in Ontario only. Must be 19 years of age or older to participate. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call Connects Ontario at 1-866-531-2600. Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I'm joined, as always, by fellow co-host Joe Wolfond. That's Joe Wolf fraud to you, my friend. Wow. As as Big Blue calls you? Yeah. Uh, Loyal listener, Big Blue, the, who we shouted out, I think. The scores, NBA, the scores NBA fraudcast. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're, uh, we're off to a weird and wild start to uh, the offseason and to free agency in general. But uh, as, as we discussed off air, uh, I think there's probably too much to get to for us to squeeze into a, a single digestible episode today. So I think that we're, we're just going to hit on the trades, right? We're going to leave the, yes. the free agent signings for another day. We're going to start by talking about the fact that one of at worst, the 10 to 15 greatest players in basketball history has requested a trade with four years left in his contract. Then we're going to talk about the fact a uh, multiple time defensive player of the year winner currently on a supermax contract just got traded uh, and then we'll talk about a couple more trades after that and yes we will save all of our pure free agency analysis for next week because there's literally not enough time to get to everything but we are going to start with kevin durant reportedly requesting a trade and the league being thrown into chaos because it's kevin effing durant and who the hell doesn't want Kevin Durant? Almost no matter where you are in your like team building exercise. There's a few exceptions to that, but not many. It's fascinating because on one hand, you have what's essentially an unprecedented situation where a player this good, a super, super, superstar, an all-time legend this good still, hits the trade market with so much term left on his contract. He's got four fully guaranteed years, no options on his contract left, no no trade clause, none of that. But on the other hand, he's also, you know, three years removed from a devastating Achilles injury. Uh, He's missed 74 games over the last two seasons after missing an entire year. He's got 40,000 NBA minutes under his belt between the regular season and the playoffs. So as unprecedented as it is, you can also look at the flip side and say, realistically, if you're trading for Kevin Durant, how many of those four years can you expect to actually get the Kevin Durant that you're ultimately trading for right i think that is the biggest question here all that said aside from Josai and sean marks and the nets in general just not wanting to deal with this whole thing anymore and the circus of everything anymore what is brooklyn's motivation to get a deal done anytime soon unless they're blown away by literally one of the biggest trade packages in history because like does anyone really believe kevin durant of all people is gonna hold out if he doesn't get traded and you still have him for four years. Again, no options. Like, for, like as much as you can say you want to do right by him and all this, what is the motivation on Brooklyn's end? 
to get this done potentially in the next few days, as Woj has reported, as opposed to just being like, look, we are literally holding out for the godfather of all godfather offers. Give us your super duper stars or you're like the, one of the five best young players in the league or we're not moving this guy because we don't have to. We can just keep him and we'll go into next season with Kevin Durant. And that gives us a good shot. I think the motivation would just be to wash their hands of this and get it yeah. over with and not let whatever animosity or whatever stink is there just fester and build. Uh, I mean, I think that pertains to like them actually going into like training camp with KD still on the roster, not necessarily, you know, getting it done within the next few days or within mm-hmm. the next month, even like they, they could hold out, but it's also like you've got other teams around the league who are going to have to move on at a certain point to other pursuits, right? Like there's obviously the chance and we've seen this happen before when a player of KD's caliber of his status is sort of up for grabs. It does tend to hold other potential moves up and the market kind of grinds to a halt as everybody waits to see how that situation is going to shake out. Not just like for the KD pursuit itself, but also for, you know, is it going to be a three-team trade? Is somebody like DeAndre Ayton going to wind up rerouted somewhere else? Like there are a lot of balls in the air and obviously a lot of teams with a vested interest in seeing how that situation plays out or wanting to get in on that situation are going to wait and and put other things on hold. Although, I mean, the rest of the market is kind of seemingly moving along a pace. So I don't know. I mean, I I think, yes, the, the Nets could kind of wait and see what comes their way. But I, I also don't know if this trade package that you're describing, this godfather offer to end all godfather offers, I don't know if that's going to be there for them for all the reasons you mentioned, right? Like we're talking about a guy who is going to be 34 by the time next season starts, who does have the Achilles tear in the rear view, who has played 90 regular season games in the last three years. It's going to be a titanic risk for whatever team is ponying up to get him. And I just feel like some of the frameworks that I've seen bandied about, just like purely hypothetical, like not even with any reporting behind them, but just things that, analysts or fans have like proposed that might get a deal like that done are insane to me because to me I feel like given where where KD is at the injuries in the rear view how close he might be to you know the end of his prime at least like he's in the tail end of his prime now he was unbelievable last season is still at the worst a top five player in the NBA but a team like Memphis for instance that I feel like a lot of people have thrown into that conversation that is clearly they have a long runway. And to me, it's like, okay, if they if they wanted to short circuit that and you know saw an opportunity to get an all-time great player and pair him with John Morant, I would understand that. But I, I think like Jaron Jackson on his own should be close to enough to get that. Like, you know, th- that's me. He's going to miss, I, by the way, not that this is going to impact right. his trade value, by the way, Jaron Jackson is going to miss at least, I, I think around the first two months of the season, I think, because he just had surgery. That actually might affect his trade value. Yeah. Not not just because, you know, if, if the Nets are taking a long view, they're not going to care about him missing like the first two months of next season. But if you think about the, the injury issues that Jaron Jackson has had in the past, and now this sort of being tacked onto that and compounding it, then yeah, I can see that maybe affecting things. But Point being, like somebody like Jaron Jackson, Scotty Barnes, a uh, 22 or under type of star, like to me, that on its own 
should be like close to enough to get KD. But then I'm seeing like, oh no, you got to it's got to be like Jaron Jackson and Desmond Bain and picks and that like that is insane to me to think that a team like Memphis would go that far and, and mortgage that much of their future to to acquire KD given all the risks involved. So I just don't know if if the Nets are ultimately going to get that mother load of an offer like they'll get a good return without a doubt but um in terms of getting like two young studs like that i I just don't know if we're actually going to see that happen another point you mentioned which is like do they feel like they need to do right by him like absolutely not why would i agree no I agree. That's part of what I'm saying is like, why, why do they need to get this done in the next, like everyone's just assuming, well, you know, he's asked out now and, and uh, they're going to get this done in the next few days. They don't want this to linger. It's like, why? They, they don't have to, they don't owe him anything. That's what I, and I saw, I think it was Chris Haynes who, who wrote something to the effect of like, it would be a bad look for the Nets to send Katie somewhere he didn't want to go. Like, are you kidding me? This guy is asking out of a situation that he helped create. Played a huge part in creating. Has four years left on his contract and they owe it to him to like send him where he needs to go. No, they don't. They they should hold out for the best possible package they can get from anywhere. If that comes from Charlotte, if it comes from Orlando, like it doesn't matter. They should send him wherever. Now, to be clear, that's not going to happen because those teams aren't going to put real stuff on the table for KD knowing that he doesn't want to go there and is going to be disgruntled and is potentially going to ask out of that situation but, or just blow again, it up imminently, right? But even if you're one of those te- if you're, I don't know, just insert whatever team, uh, just hypothetically, and Kevin Durant says, well, I don't want to go there. Again, if you're that team, why would you not still trade? Because like I asked a few minutes ago, KD of all people, the guy who just loves to hoop, right? Just like, that's all he could. Do we really think he, after everything he's been through, injury rise, whatever, at this stage of his career too, would actually hold out and refuse to play or completely dog it and just throw away these final good years of his career? So even if you are a team that doesn't think Kevin Durant wants to go there, I'd still trade for him if if it made sense. I'm not saying I'd give up everything, but I'm just saying I would still trade for him if I if there was a deal to be made that allowed me to compete for a championship immediately without you know, completely banking on 36, 37-year-old Kevin Durant at the expense of, like, a franchise superstar for 10 years, you, you can make the deal. And I don't think you should have to worry about whether Kevin Durant's happy with your landing spot because, as you just said, like, no one no one owes him anything, and he's got very little leverage here. And also, you mentioned, like, yeah, him, him helping create that situation in Brooklyn. Like, the reason they need to absolutely maximize the return and should not care about hurting his feelings or not, just getting the best possible deal they can is because they very much need to replenish the like asset capital and their draft coverage because they've left them barren in constructing teams that Kevin Durant almost handpicked. Like he wanted, like he came to play with Kyrie Irving, then he wanted James Harden. So they got rid of all those pit. Like they owe him nothing and no team should be worried about whether he wants to play there or not, given the term on his contract. Right. I, I just think that those teams are ultimately going to be dissuaded <laughs> because look, it, think about the risk involved, right? Like if you, if you are a team like Phoenix, which by all accounts is like the favorite to land KD, it makes sense. You know, like Chris Paul is at the tail end of his career. The window is short. This is an opportunity to, you know, for like the next couple of years, at least like really not that they weren't already contenders, but like 
be like at the top of the heap pretty much like mm-hmm. runaway favorite to win a championship in the next couple of years. That makes perfect sense for a team in Phoenix's position, but for a team in, you know, say Memphis's position, or, you know, if you want to go like a lower rung team, even Utah, right. Who, who just now has all this bundle of picks that they could potentially use to entice KD to come and play with Donovan Mitchell. I, I just, you kind of can see how that might play out where KD comes and sort of forces you to exhaust all of your resources and mortgage your future. And then if it doesn't work, if it goes sideways because you've kind of gutted your depth to get him, I just, you know, then maybe he's disgruntled or he's asking out or just like, I just don't know that a team in that position is going to see the value in making that kind of all in play for as special as Kevin Durant still is at, you know, almost 34 years of age. It's just for a team that's a little bit more in the middle or just has more of a long-term trajectory, I just don't know that that is going to be worth the risk. And it all comes down to like team control as well, right? When we're talking about the guys that can be traded for him. Like I put out a tweet last night saying that I think there are, you know, maybe 12 to 15 players league-wide based on taking everything into account contract status, team control, like everything that the teams that are on right now, distance from contention, all that, that there are only like 12 to 15 players I definitely wouldn't trade even for KD at this stage of his career, which like that might sound like a lot to some people, but that's actually a very short list given how deep into his career Kevin Durant is, which goes to just show you how great he still is. But it's all about that team control factor. And a perfect example, like you just brought up Phoenix, right? One of the early reports, can't remember if it was Woj or Windhorse or who it was, but was that you know, okay, they were his top choice, but uh, the Brooklyn had basically countered with, well, we want Devin Booker then, because this is Kevin Durant. Now, the thing is, so Devin Booker just signed that new Supermax extension that I think it, it was four years, right, tacked on to what he's, he got two left. So now he's got six years of team control. If, say, he hadn't signed that yet, and it was he had two years of team control left, I would trade Devin two years of prime Devin Booker for age 34 Kevin Durant, because I do think Kevin Durant is still that good. But Devin Booker on the new contract, right? Where now you're you've got an in his prime star or superstar, whatever you want to call him, under team control for six years, say between the ages of like 26 to 32, versus ages 34 to 37, Kevin Durant completely changed the equation. Now I'm not trading Devin Booker for him. And you you mentioned Scotty Barnes as an example. Obviously, you know, in Toronto, that's the big thing everyone's talking about. It's like, would you trade Scotty Barnes for Kevin Durant? Me personally, Scotty Barnes is on that short list of 12 to 15 guys. I would not trade for age 34, Kevin Durant. That's all I'm saying. And again, anyone who knows me, Wolfon, you know this by doing this podcast with me for years. You know that I am usually very much team, let's call him, let's call it team Herb Edwards. You remember the old Jets coach? The, the you famous, play to win the game. Right. Hello, you play to win the game. I'm usually that guy. And so I very much usually shed no tears for teams getting rid of prospects to max out the chance to win a championship and especially if you win one everything is validated however i do think every situation is different and if we're talking about scotty barnes for example i think you have to look at the big picture and think about it from toronto's perspective as well masai ujiri's organization that's there's good organizational infrastructure and long-term building plans around a guy who could be and looks like he it could be on his way to being a legitimate superstar future, like title contending type superstar in this league, right? So from Toronto's perspective, if, if they most likely believe that over time they can construct 
consistent and like perennial contenders with Scotty Barnes at the core of that. And Scotty Barnes is only going into year two of his rookie scale contract, where when you consider, you know, the fact that teams still have control after the rookie scale because it's restricted and they can offer the first extensions, you're usually looking at for a player who as good as Scotty Barnes could be approximately what seven to eight years of true team control. So in this case of Scotty Barnes, you're looking at like six to seven more years, say of team or seven to eight more years of team control, whatever it is. The point is you're looking at, would you trade the ages 21 to 28 seasons of a guy like Scotty Barnes with a good organizational structure around him for the age 34 to 37 seasons of of Kevin Durant? I think that's a little nuts. And that is not me at all taking away from how good Kevin Durant still is. It is definitely not me forgetting how good Kevin Durant is. Remember KD said, I'm Kevin Durant. Y'all know who I am. Yes, I'm very well aware of who he is. Scotty Barnes will like, most likely, even if he has an unbelievable career, will most likely never be as good as Kevin Durant was at his absolute best. But timelines have to be considered. Team control has to be considered. Where players are in their careers have to be considered. And to your point about some of the batshit crazy trade packages people are coming up with on Twitter are talking about some of them seem batshit nuts given these timelines we're talking about yeah I mean I actually I look at that and I'm like that that's a situation just you know like even talking about the Jaron Jackson thing where you know Scotty Barnes is a player to me who if the Raptors put him on the table that should be enough almost on its own to get a deal like that done to me like I, I feel like you know obviously the salary filler that needs to go in there like you know, Gary Trent Jr. or whatever else. But like, if you're talking about adding more core young pieces to that package, if you're talking about then going like Scotty Barnes plus OG Ananobi plus Gary Trent plus picks, that's when I'm like, I'm out. You know, like I actually think I would do if I was in the Raptors position just because of like Fred and Pascal, those guys are in their primes right now. Like they're ready to win now. And I think from that perspective, that three, you know, or whatever, maybe it's a two-year window, whatever it is. Like, I think that makes it worth it. But I I wouldn't go any further than, you know, in terms of like core young pieces. And I don't consider Gary Trent actually one of them. But like OG, I 100% do. I wouldn't go beyond Scotty Barnes in terms of like that future equity in order to get that deal done. Like that's where I would stop. So I feel like there's a bit of a disconnect there between like how I'm thinking about this stuff and how... Other people, I guess, around the league are, are sort of thinking about it. But I don't know. I mean, it's something that could, I guess, drag on for a while. And uh, I, I'm obviously very curious to see where it goes and what that package ultimately ends up being because we just haven't really seen a situation like this before, right? Where a top five player in the league with four years left on his contract is on the trade block. Like, yeah. can you, is there anything we can compare this to? Sports history or at least like North American pro sports history. I can't think of a player this good, or at least this legendary, being on the trade block with this much term left on his contract. Like, I don't know, what, what was Gretzky's term when he got traded in 88 to the Kings? But I mean, the difference there is Gretzky was still very much, maybe not in his prime, he was, but still he was closer to his prime than KD was. Like Gretzky yeah. still had like five years of prime years left at that point. And that, anyway, we're talking about a different sport like 34 years ago. So that just goes to show you what kind of, you know, unprecedented uh, trade 
potential this is. Also, I just I do want to correct myself because I was talking about you know like team control mm-hmm. on uh, guys coming into the league and stuff. Really, it's it, you can look at it as like eight to nine years because the rookie scales four if they get a four to five year extension on top of that. So you're looking at eight to nine years of total team control. So in the case of Scotty Barnes, you'd be looking at another seven to eight years. So like that's what I was saying. It's like you'd be trading essentially Scotty Barnes's control from age 21 to 28 for age 34 to 37 KD. But again, yeah. you also, to your point, have to consider like how close you are to a championship. Yes, if you do that, if you're Toronto, for example, and you end up with Durant, Siakam, and Van Vliet and win a title or two immediately, that pretty much justifies everything. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I, I just, you know, just to speak to how crazy and unprecedented this situation is, I mean, it's completely overshadowed the fact that Kyrie Irving is also on the trade block. And I feel like everything that has gone on with Kyrie over the last couple of years, I feel like it's almost made people forget how good he is at basketball. Like, I understand why any team would be reluctant to trade for Kyrie. Like, the uncertainty that we just talked about with KD in terms of just his health and his age. Like, you you mentioned, like, that guy's a hooper. He, he just want, Like, he just wants to play. And you can be reasonably assured that if you get him, he'll he will come and he will give it his all and he will play really, really well for you and will suit up whenever he is healthy enough to do so. Yeah. That is not the case with Kyrie, but he's still really, really, really good. And the fact that there just seems to be no market for him whatsoever, you know, outside of the Lakers, basically, uh, is, is fairly surprising to me. So, um, yeah, I don't know. This is just going to be... It's going to be a crazy few days. And I'm sure when we reconvene to talk again, uh, we will have a lot more to chat about on that front. Last thing real quick before we get to the Rudy Gobert trade. From the Nets perspective, I do wonder like what, obviously, yes, they just want the best package available, but I do wonder the way they're evaluating things right now, because on one hand, you want the best package available and also the one that will put you in the best shape long-term, right? So whether that is like a young potential superstar, like a Barnes, whatever the case may be, but on the other hand, given how much of their future they did mortgage to build the team that, you know, never amounted to anything, Houston essentially owning all their picks from now until the end of time, you'd figure they also do want to stay at least somewhat competitive in the short term, right? So they freaking traded a first round pick for Royce O'Neal. So yeah, it seems like like they want to stay competitive. Right. So that also has to be taken into account. If it's like a guy like Barnes, for example, is the centerpiece of a deal with salary filler around that. Like, I don't know how quickly are you really if if it if it ends up in a situation where like Barnes become is the best player on his team at this stage of his career, that might be tough to really compete immediately. And then yeah, if you're owing another team unprotected picks while well, in that situation, that could get dicey because then it's like, well, how are you building around that guy mm-hmm. going forward? Um, I think the the latest report from Windhorse was like at least one quote unquote young star and at least three draft picks. The question also becomes like, well, define young. <laughs> So there, define, there are young, define young, define star, right. you know, a lot of things still up in the air, but yeah, I mean, like you said, by the time we talk again, who knows, maybe Kevin Durant is already a member of another team. We've already gone 24 minutes in. So let's take our break right now, come back and talk about the biggest trade that actually has already gone down this summer. And that's the Timberwolves acquiring Wooden Gobert. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. 
You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet light-hearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, well, Fawn, you wrote about this trade on Friday. Five first-round picks? Uh, so four first rounders, three of which are completely unprotected. One of which is a top five protected, then a pick swap and, uh, Walker Kessler, who they just drafted in the first round, like a week ago. So if you, if you call Walker Kessler, basically a first round pick, then yeah, that's five first rounders plus a swap. Look, I I think right off the top, we can just say, unambiguously a home run for the jazz you know like that's that's an incredible haul for them and you know some of those picks i mean they're like well into the future and even if this works for the wolves in the short term like those unprotected picks in like you know 2027 for example or the top five protected pick in 2029 i know it's hard to like see that far into the future um and I, I, people love to, I was going to say joke. It's not really a joke. Like people love to talk about like the imminent societal collapse that will make those distant picks moot. But historically, betting against the Timberwolves has been a really smart bet. And I think for the Jazz, you know, whether they want to turn around and like trade a bunch of that draft equity now to like improve their team in the present, because reports indicate that they are planning on keeping Mitchell and retooling the roster around him, whether that's the move or whether it's full rebuild, Either way, like we knew they kind of wanted out of not necessarily just the Rudy Gobert business, but like the whole situation that has sort of turned toxic there over the last couple of years. This is an incredible start. I mean, like an incredible way for them to do that in terms of uh, the players and picks that they recouped. Yeah, I mean, from Utah's perspective, if they had come to the conclusion, and I think we clearly realized they had that the Gobert Mitchell era was over. It needed to be broken up. They needed a shakeup and a fresh start. You cannot ask for better return for Rudy Gobert than what they got. Uh, on the flip side, and I'll you know cede the mic to you because, like I said, you wrote about this more and, and the whole new twin tower setup in Minnesota. I will say I understand that it is a lot to give up, and it very well could come back to bite the Wolves in the ass in a major, major way. Like they have to win now. No ifs, ands, or buts. You know, I don't even just mean like they have to win a championship. They have to win on some level. They have to become a perennial contender to make this worth it, given what they have mortgaged to do it. But I also will say that having Anthony Edwards, who's only two years into a rookie scale deal, you know, I talked about all that team control. So you can realistically look at it as like they might have him for like five to seven more years of team control. Carl Anthony Towns on a new Supermax. Rudy Gobert, I think, is four more years under his contract. Like, there are worse situations to be in than having Carl Anthony Towns, Anthony Edwards, and Rudy Gobert locked up under team control for, like, almost all of them the next half decade. From that perspective, as much as they gave up to get Rudy Gobert, the Wolves are, like, stability, continuity-wise knowing that they should at least be at worst competitive for the foreseeable future with three legit stars and one, you know, one of whom we'll see what Anthony Edwards can turn into going forward is like the most stability I can remember this franchise having maybe ever, you know, 
I was going to say since the KG days, but even back then, if you remember those days, they didn't really have stability. It was Kevin Garnett propping up kind of a joke franchise. So from that perspective, I do get it. And again, if they win and they become a perennial contender in Minnesota, you know, where they were never going to get a free agent anyway, like to have those three guys there isn't a bad setup, but obviously gave up a lot to do it. And again, I'll now cede the mic to you to hear your thoughts on whether you believe they can be a perennial contender as presently constructed. Yeah. And and like the thing I want to say before we say anything else, and this pertains to the DeJounte Murray trade too, which I think we can talk about afterwards, but mm-hmm. I, I kind of group them together in the sense that, you know, they're both trades made by like mid to low rung playoff teams that feel like these all in moves that a lot of people have sort of criticized them for because it's like, they're not close enough to contention to be selling out you know, and, and like making that all in push now. And I heard, you know, people saying, especially with the Hawks trade, it's like, uh, this is a trade that you make when you're one piece away and this wasn't the time to do it. And it's like, okay, but how and when were they going to get to the point where they were one piece away? And if and when that happened, like who's to say that a trade like that would have been available to them, like for a player like this in both cases, like for Minnesota and Atlanta, that I think fits what they need almost perfectly. Like it sometimes it doesn't pay to just sit on your hands and wait. Like you just don't know. So I I like seeing teams go for it and just try to make their teams better and kind of see what happens. And I'm not saying that like every team should do that. Like there are definitely moves like this that I don't like, where there are delusional teams that think they're closer than they actually are and make bad trades that sacrifice too much future for a player that isn't actually going to move the needle for them but in these cases I actually think the deals more or less make sense and I and I don't like the constant like you know breaking down a trade to see who won it and who lost because I think that's so much less interesting than saying you know what does this deal actually mean for the team that was willing to put so much on the table that was willing to take the big swing and the risk like how does it actually affect them? Like that's that's just way, way more interesting to me. So I think, yeah, we can say these trades were wins for Utah and San Antonio. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they were losses for Minnesota and Atlanta. If say Minnesota has a four-year run with all, with all three of Edwards, Towns, and Gobert over the next four years where they don't win a championship, but they make a conference finals, they make the second round three or four years, they have like a 55-win season there... In Minnesota, the Timberwolves. You realize the franchise we're talking about? I know that there will be people that say, if you didn't win a championship in those four years, this was a failure. But do you really think if Minnesota had kept all those picks that they would have won a championship with Car? Like, no. So if the Timberwolves have a four-year run like that, then I think this is a win. I don't think anyone has lost this deal. Yeah. All right. Now tell us what you think of the Timberwolves. Man, basketball-wise, I love it. I I think it's such a great fit. I I know people are going to see the okay, you already had a center, like the the league is trending smaller and you put all this draft capital on the table to play two bigs together in a league where that's not really in vogue. But Gobert basically addresses everything that they needed. I mean, their defense took a huge step forward last year, okay? They finished 13th in defensive efficiency. Never in Carl Anthony Towns' seven-year career had they finished better than 20th. And even that year that they finished 20th was an outlier. Pretty much every other year of his career, it was like 27th or lower. So they're already on the upswing defensively. We've talked a lot 
this year about how they did that. You know, Chris Finch comes in, completely overhauls their scheme, bases it on, you know, sort of a, a ton of help and aggressiveness and activity, which we hadn't seen from them before. Towns, instead of being in a drop, is playing up at the level of the screen. There's way more help at the top and in the middle of the floor. They're overloading the strong side. They're forcing a ton of turnovers. It worked really well, but there were so many concessions they had to make also to to make that happen that ultimately still put a cap on how good the defense could be, right? Like teams that play that style, you know, they open themselves up to offensive rebounds. The Wolves were 27th in defensive rebound rate last season. They, you know, as a consequence of their aggression, they foul a lot. The Wolves were dead last in opponent free throw attempt rate. The reason they they started to bring Towns up to the level is because he's not a good drop defender. He's not a good rim protector. So they they gave up all those concessions. They also gave up a ton of corner threes, second highest frequency of corner threes in the league because of all the help they ha- they're having to pull in from the corner. They made those concessions without improving as a rim protecting team. They're still one of the worst rim protecting teams in the league. They get Gobert, the best rim protector in the world, who, like, I don't think they need to completely do away with the aggressiveness, like the the emphasis on forcing turnovers. They don't need to scrap all that stuff, but they can just deploy it more selectively now. And they have the opportunity to, you know, with Gobert, play pick and rolls two on two. With those two guys on the floor together, they can use Towns kind of whichever way they want, right? Like they they can have him up at the level. They can have him in more of a shallow drop. They can they can blitz. They can switch even. Having Gobert behind him, it just gives you so many different options. Like it 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 makes defense easier for everyone, which is why I, I know the Jazz defense has kind of had a rough go of it in the playoffs the last couple of years, but there's just been a consistently high floor for that team at the defensive end because of the stability that Gobert provides as like a safety net behind everyone else. That's why, you know, the Jazz pretty much his entire career have A, been one of the best defensive rebounding teams in the league. Minnesota needs that badly. And been one of the best teams at limiting shots at the rim and three-point shots because obviously he's, you know, an insane rim deterrent. Like guys just aren't going to try him at the rim. But that ripples out and affects the perimeter defense as well because, A, guys can stay home in pick and roll, right? You don't need to engage that third defender because Rudy can kind of play one-on-two. He can do that as well as just about anybody where he's sort of tracking the ball handler and staying in contact with the roll man at the same time. You can play that two-on-two. The guys can stay home on the perimeter. So you're not giving up those clean catch-and-shoot threes that come out of, you know, skip passes and when you're putting yourself in rotation. Also, just in terms of one-on-one defense, like your perimeter defenders can press up. Like they don't have to worry as much about getting beat off the bounce because they know they have Gobert behind them. So uh, I just think for a team that was already on the upswing defensively, this will make them that much better. It will make them that much more flexible. Like they don't have to be boxed in to playing this hyper-aggressive style all the time. And it just all all the areas in which they were weak, uh, he addresses them. So home run defensively. And I think despite the fact that Gobert is a limited offensive player, I actually think he helps them at the offensive end as well. And and I got into the reasons why in that piece, but to, to sort of just run through them, A, the Wolves, I think, really needed a legitimate role man. We've talked about this a lot. Carl Anthony Towns is not that guy. He wants to pop. He always wants to pop. He has the ability, but seemingly not the willingness to actually roll to the basket 
consistently. And Gobert is going to do that. He like we we know even even if he's not getting the ball, if all he's doing is just presenting that role gravity where he's you know dragging in an extra weak side defender like the tag man because of the threat of you know the lob going to him, he's still going to do it even if the ball doesn't get to him uh, because that's what he does, and that is just going to make it's going to make life easier for D'Angelo Russell who's a really good passer, who's going to have all kinds of skip pass opportunities that he didn't have before and lob pass opportunities he didn't have before. I think it's going to make life easier for Anthony Edwards. Although I do think for, for Ant, like it's still going to make sense for Ant, I think to run pick and roll with cat. You know what I mean? Because he's yep. not the playmaker that Russell is. And I think importantly, he still doesn't have the in-between game where like, if you're running pick and roll with Gobert and the opposing team is dropping and it's like a deep drop because they worry about Gobert getting behind them and that opening up the lob. That's when you got to have the, the in-between stuff, the pull up mid range or the floater, which is like very much D'Angelo Russell's game, but not Edwards's game yet. Yeah. exactly. So I think for him who thrives on like getting downhill and getting to the rim and usually creating for himself out of pick and roll, that's when like running pick and pop with cat, who's going to drag, you know, the big man defender out to the perimeter with him and open up those driving lanes, that's still going to make sense for Edwards. So I feel like pairing those guys off in pick and roll, pairing Russell and Gobert off in pick and roll is going to be really effective. And then you just think about what those two guys can do together offensively, like how mutually complementary they are, where you run like double ball screens or horns action, have Gobert rolling, cat popping, like it's kind of perfect. And I, I don't think it's nothing that like Malik Beasley went out in this trade. Like, I, I think it's fine that they did that. They're, they're still going to suffer a bit, I think, from a lack of shooting around those core guys. Um, which is and, why they signed Bryn Forbes. But which, uh, by the way, on a minimum contract, crazy bargain. I know he basically doesn't do anything else but shoot. Yeah. But his shooting numbers are elite. 83 players have knocked down 600 plus threes over the last five years. Mm-hmm. Of those 83 players, Bryn Forms, number two only to Joe Harris in three-point percentage over that time. Yeah. And I they mean, got him we'll, on a minimum. We'll see how much he can play given the, the defensive yeah. limitations there. But yeah, I mean, that's those are the types of guys that they're going to have to add on the cheap to, like, they, they will need to figure out the spacing around all those guys. But it's like, Cat provides so much of that spacing, right? So... Like, you know, if you have one of like one of your guards running pick and roll with Gobert, you know, it can be a double ball screen action where Cat is popping or he can just be spotting up. And I think, honestly, I think adding Gobert is going to be healthy for their offense, if anything. And, you know, to that point, like I've seen people make make the point that, well, you had Towns who's like the best shooting big man in the league. It's such an advantage to have him playing center because like to get that kind of spacing at the five spot is just an enormous luxury. But I don't know if those people actually watched a lot of Timberwolves basketball last year because the Wolves did not have five out spacing. And the reason for that is because of Towns' defensive limitations, because they had to have him up at the level and had to essentially navigate the rotations behind him. They needed to have like, you know, Jared Vanderbilt, Jaden McDaniels, like these defensive specialists who could fill those lineups out. And what started to happen more and more is opposing teams would just have their centers guard those guys. 
who not only couldn't shoot, but just didn't really have a ton of offensive skill in general, especially Vanderbilt. And so Towns was being guarded by power forwards mostly anyway. So this doesn't actually change a whole lot in that respect. But what it does change is that instead of having Jared Vanderbilt, you know, in the dunker spot, you have Rudy Gobert, who's actually a lob threat there and who can actually be a dive man. You know, like I think that actually makes a big difference. So uh, I think, you know, to focus on the offensive limitations would be all wrong. Like I think he actually helps offensively and obviously helps immensely defensively. So I, I just love the fit. And I think... I think this Wolves team is going to be really good. I do. They have now constructed the most talented team in the 33-year history of this franchise. And one of the things I talked about, you know, as the finals were being played out and specifically with regards to the Celtics, don't get me wrong. I, I completely understand how great this Celtics team was, how great the defense was. But, you know, between the level of somewhat parity, parity for the NBA standards that we've seen the last few years, you know, seven different teams in the last four finals, in terms of like the finals, probably the most parody we've seen since the late 70s when like the the Bullets and the Sonics and the Warriors are winning titles. It is very much a different era right now for the NBA without a true super team or two to dominate, right? And if you look at that Celtics team as an example, as great as they were, I think there are a lot, a lot of teams around the league who could have looked at that Celtics team and say, look, they're, they're, they are clearly better than us, but that team is not at all some like untouchable type team when it comes to roster construction or the players they have where we are so far away from that in this current climate of the NBA in this modern era of the NBA where there does seem to be this window of somewhat parity even at the highest level we are not that far off from actually constructing a team that has more than just a pie in the sky chance to get all the way yes to the finals and a I think that's good for the league and and teams around the league to see things like that and b If we're going to say, or at least I'm going to say that we are in an era like that right now where, you know, if you construct a a really good team, you have a better chance to get to the finals than you would have had, say, five years ago when you needed to construct almost like an all-time team. If I'm going to say that, then I also can't say a team that's got Carl Anthony Towns, Rudy Gobert, and Anthony Edwards locked up for the next four to six years doesn't have a chance to win in that window because they've given themselves at least a chance to do that in this current climate in the NBA. Maybe not immediately, but at some point over these next few years, especially depending on how Anthony Edwards develops. Because if he becomes like a superstar type wing player scorer, then absolutely you can contend for a title with that type of player and Cardinal Anthony Towns and Rudy and Gobert behind them. Like they're 20, 26, and 30. Like the this is good. They have a very, very good trio for the next almost half decade, pretty much all either in their primes, approaching their primes. It's a good problem to have, even when you consider how much of their future they mortgaged. Yeah. And worth noting, I mentioned Jaden McDaniels earlier and his kind of offensive limitations, which I think like there's definitely way more offensive upside there with him than there was with Vanderbilt. He's a special defensive player. Like, And he's 21, I think. So I I feel like there's a lot of room for him to grow. Part of the reason the Wolves put that much draft capital on the table was so that they could keep Jaden McDaniels. And I don't mind that as a, like he was the kind of known commodity for them. And, and, you know, they know more about him than any of us do. They're obviously extremely high on him. I think they should be. So to, you know, say whatever it cost them, like maybe it was two extra first round picks or like a first rounder and a swap, like whatever it was that they had to put on the table so that they could hang on to Jaden McDaniels. 
I like that for them. I like them betting on the the sort of players that they already have on the roster and and internal development. Like he's going to be an important player for them moving forward. And I, I'm curious to see where his development goes because it, he's definitely going to have a part to play if this team does want to contend now and and into the future. Not quite the same magnitude, but still a big trade in the opposite conference. Let's talk to Jante Murray to Atlanta. Uh, Spurs obviously get a bunch of draft capital out of it, seem more motivated and ready to do a complete, you know, bottoming out than they have been in a long time, basically ever, because the only time they truly did it and landed Tim Duncan, it was only because David Robinson got hurt. Uh, I've talked about this before, but like, you know, the Spurs spent almost 30 years, or basically like three decades with a transcendent type superstar on the roster, whether it was David Robinson, Tim Duncan, or Kawhi Leonard. They go a few years without one, suddenly start to look a lot more normal as a franchise. And I think very much understand that if they want to get back in the mix or even have a chance to get anyone nearly that good again, it's most likely going to be through the draft and and hoping for lottery luck. And they seem ready to do that now based on the trade they made. What are your thoughts on it from Atlanta's perspective? Uh, Yeah, very similar to how I feel about it from Minnesota's where I kind of look at it. version, right? Honestly, like, look, Gobert is a better, more impactful player than DeJounte Murray, but DeJounte is five years younger. And again, in terms of the fit, it's like, it's not perfect. There may be some hiccups and we can get into that. But I don't hate a team in Atlanta's position looking at their roster, looking at the Eastern Conference and saying, we have a chance to maybe put ourselves in this mix. Like, we're not going to be maybe an inner circle contender, at least not right away. But this is going to make us better. And I think importantly, like DeJounte is 25, right? And Trey Young's freaking 23. And what DeAndre Hunter is what, like 24? You know, Okongwu is like 21 or 22. Like they're still really young. So it's not like they need to contend this season in order for this to pay off. Like are they signing up to maybe pay DeJounte Murray, you know, a, a huge contract like when his current deal runs out? Yeah. And I think a big thing, you know, from San Antonio's perspective is because they got him on such an affordable contract, you know, whenever they signed, you know, I think what, two years ago, right? He, he's like two yeah. years into a four year, $64 million contract, which is one of the biggest bargains in the league. Because of that, they actually couldn't extend him because the way those extension rules work, it's like you can only extend a guy for you know, 125% of his existing contract. And Murray was just never going to do that because he was getting paid so little relative to his value. Uh, it was the same thing that the Bulls ran into with Zach Levine, essentially, like when they wanted to extend him a couple years ago. So I think they saw that, recognized that, you know, it was a good chance that two years from now he wasn't going to resign and saw the opportunity to cash him in now for like maximum possible value. With the Hawks, I think they can feel reasonably assured that if th- this thing, you know, works, again, th- not like winning a championship, but just they're in the hunt. They're a 50-plus win team. They're still young. There's upward mobility. They're going to be able to re-sign him. Maybe it will turn out to be a, a kind of tough pill to swallow. Like, it'll be a huge contract that turns out to be an overpay. I don't know. But point being, they have room. They have time. And I- again, I just think... The fit works, man. Like, what, like if if you were trying to design the perfect backcourt partner for Trey Young, 
you would want someone, I guess, who could shoot a little bit better than DeJounte Murray can. But apart from that, how much more perfect could could that backcourt mate for him be? And I'd value the def- the defense in a guard playing beside Trey Young more than I would the shooting. I'm not saying I'd completely devalue the shooting, but I would prioritize the defensive ability of the guard playing off of Trey Young. Yeah, DeJounte Murray's got it in abundance. Right. And so what have we talked about for the last, you know, two, three years in terms of uh, the the issues that the Hawks have had building around Trey Young or the issues they've just had, you know, with him on the roster or with him at the center of everything. They can't score when he's off the floor. They can't defend with him on the floor. Does DeJounte Murray not address both of those issues? I mean, I think we can get into, you know, I guess some of the challenges that come with that, like, do you want to split them up that much given that, you know, like you need DeJounte to sort of insulate trade defensively. So maybe you want to keep them together and not stagger them as aggressively as some teams stagger their stars. But like DeJounte can keep that offensive float when Trey is on the bench. And when Trey is on the floor, he is going to improve their defense, which finished 26th in the league last season. And even if it comes at a, a cost to their offense, like they have a long way to fall because they were number two in offensive efficiency last year. So there's some leeway there where they can afford to take a step back offensively if it means that their defense is going to really improve. And I think that is what's going to happen. And even offensively, you know, the issues that so many people have pointed to, and I don't think they're unfounded, are, okay, well, Trey doesn't really do anything off ball, which I think he is going to have to change in that regard. And by all accounts, he wanted this trade to happen, right? So he has to be open to being a more active off-ball player. And then obviously DeJounte, it's not that he can't play off of the ball. It just, he doesn't have the shooting gravity. So he's going to need to, you know, punch those gaps. Like whether it like, you know, sprinting into handoffs or catches where he's kind of, you know, attacking a scrambled defense or cutting, just like taking advantage of teams that gap him when he's off the ball. He's going to have to do that too. I'm not. I'm, I'm not denying the fact that that is like a bit of a complicating factor. Just the like the possibility for the offense to kind of devolve into a my turn, your turn thing because it's not the most synergistic on slash off ball fit. But I, I trust them to figure it out. And I also like okay, it, part of that part of the stuff with Trey and like his ball dominance and his not moving around off ball. Part of that is on him. But I do think part of it is on like the rest of the Hawks roster construction too, because like find me the the teammate that he's had over the last three years that has been able to consistently create like catch and shoot threes for him. You know, like who's the drive and kick engine or or the the on ball creator who has enough on ball gravity, uh, you know, enough of the drive and kick juice to actually make. Trey's life easier to like find those catch and shoot looks for him. I, I, I don't think they've had that guy. No, they thought Lou Williams could be it. And, and, but he was like a billion years old, you know, that's, like, a, but that, that's my point that they, they thought he could be it at that stage of his career. They yeah. haven't had, well, well, they haven't had that guy like Bogdan. Right. But again, he's not, he's not a North South. No, guy. not, not at all. And, and Herder, like Herder had the playmaking chops, but again, it's like very much, like perimeter oriented playmaking and not inside out playmaking, which is exactly what you get from Murray. So I'm looking at it and I see, you know, Trey Young has hit 44% of his catch and shoot threes over the last three years, 48% last year. Like he is an incredible 
catch and shoot three point shooter. And the the issue is only 17% of the threes he has taken over that three year span have actually come off of the catch because of the issues we talked about. A, you know, his sort of ball dominance and, and like the proclivities that are, are going to need to change and B, the lack of guys who could create those catch and shoot shots for him. So uh, I think he's going to have to adapt, but I think Murray is going to help him adapt in a way that no teammate he has had to this point uh, has been able to. So that's where I see it kind of working at the offensive end, maybe better than some people think that it might. Uh, I, I do wonder, you know, defensively, DeJounte is an amazing defender. Okay. And I actually think like he took a step back defensively last year because his offensive role really scaled up. And I think the hope is in Atlanta, he can scale down the offensive role next to Trey and that's going to help him get back to his peak all defensive level at the other end. It's still hard for a guard to really impact team defense, like without, you know, the, the right supporting pieces around him. And, you know, to illustrate that, look at the last three years for Murray in San Antonio. Uh, he, like the, the, the years essentially since he suffered that torn ACL. And the year before he suffered that torn ACL, he was all defensive second team. But in the years since then, the Spurs finished, you know, in the bottom half of the league in defensive efficiency all three of those seasons. And in two of them, they were actually significantly worse defensively with Murray on the floor. So you can see, like, he's a fantastic defensive guard, but it's still it's still kind of hard as a guard to have that kind of team-level impact because you're not necessarily impacting plays at the rim, which is still the most valuable real estate on the court. And it's just kind of too easy for an offensive team to isolate you on one side of the floor away from the action or screen you out of the play. The issue they might run into is in order for the defense to actually be really good, or even like just above average, Murray's still going to have to be on the court with like Capella or a Kongwu. And then maybe you start to run into like some significant spacing issues. Yeah, I mean, obviously he's not going to be able to impact their defense the way, okay, we were just talking about Gobert in Minnesota, obviously <laughs> much different game. But he, yes, he's not going to be able to impact it on that level. But in the right ecosystem, a, a great defensive guard can have a great impact. And while maybe you can look at the Hawks' current roster and still say, okay, it's not that kind of ecosystem yet, the more you add good defensive players, the more it becomes that ecosystem. And DeAndre Hunter, like how many times have we spoken over the last two years about how much better and different the Hawks' defense looks with him on the court? Well, not that you're not still going to be relying on DeAndre Hunter. You yeah. are, but... Can he stay on the court, though, is a big question, right? Right, with his health. But how much better does it now look, and how much better is DeAndre Hunter's defense with a guy like DeJounte Murray on the court, right? There are less fires to put out. There are less things to have to cover for. Even Clint Capella, who two years ago was like a defensive player of the year candidate in the best season of his career. Now, he he did take a step back last year, and you can say that one year was an outlier. But again, even a guy like Capella, if all of a sudden you've got DeJounte Murray and DeAndre Hunter on the court in front of you, Mm -hmm. I bet Clint Capella's defense looks a lot better. Like a lot of things just start coming together and fall into place simply by putting DeJounte Murray out there. So while I'm with you that, yes, like it it is hard for a guard to have the kind of team level impact the most valuable defensive players in the league have without being in the right ecosystem. I also think DeJounte Murray now coming to Atlanta helps foster that ecosystem. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if they are frisky on the defensive end. We have seen this team two years ago build at least a semi-competent defense even in minutes when Trey Young was on the court, 
and they are now vastly superior in terms of defensive talent than they were then. Yeah. To that effect, it is interesting that they traded Kevin Herter, who's yeah. shooting, you know, ostensibly they were going to be reliant on uh, to the Kings and and they get Justin Holiday back, who's a, a good shooter, not on Herter's level, but a, I think a much better defender than Kevin Herter. So now you're looking at a team that to insulate Trey Young has DeJounte Murray, DeAndre Hunter, Clint Capella. I mean, I guess we'll see how much longer Clint Capella is there. Uh, a Kongwu, Holiday, like the pieces are there to make this thing work at the defensive end of the floor. I do think, you know, as much as we talked about Trey needs to get better off ball offensively, I feel like DeJounte needs to get better off ball defensively because his strengths have typically, typically been as an on ball guy. And I think what you need if you're defending next to Trey is like, it's got to be about the sort of nail help and the digs on drives and like a lot of help and recover stuff that I don't think Murray is bad at by any means. It just hasn't necessarily been his forte. And I feel like it needs to become his forte in a lot of ways. But I do think they have the infrastructure to protect Trey in a way that they mm-hmm. didn't before. And I think that's really interesting. Um, and then, you know, the, the kind of last remaining big question that I have about all this is like, you know, who's playing the four for them? Because John Collins, again, like you talk about, okay, DeJounte is going to be on the floor. One of Capella or Okongwu is on the floor. You really need spacing from the power forward spot. And Collins is kind of perfect for that, but they seem to be wanting to trade him or he wants them to trade him. Or I don't know. He's just been on the trade block for however long, for whatever reason. Is he going to be on the team on opening night? And if not, are they either, you know, trading him for another power forward who can shoot or are they trading him for a different type of player and just expecting DeAndre Hunter to slot up and play the four full time and is Hunter up for that challenge he's long and he's pretty strong but like you know he's not he doesn't exactly have a power forward body I don't think right and I don't know how much you want a guy to slide up when he doesn't have that body when he's already got injury concerns exactly exactly so that's that's like the last sort of big remaining question that i have about all this and like how how is that going to get sorted um and the capella question too i guess like is is he long for this roster do they believe in a, a congo enough to to ship capella out the door is there even a market for capella if they wanted to trade right. him like all those are still questions that need to be answered but look again i'll say like i, I like them taking this swing I like that it makes them better now and still leaves them with that upward mobility because Murray took a huge step forward last year. There's nothing to say that he can't keep getting better. And, you know, the pieces around him and Trey are are still relatively young. You know, like even the veterans on the team, like Capella, like Bogdanovich, are pretty young vets. So uh, I think there's room for this team to grow and get better. And even if they're not in the title conversation next year, I feel like they're still going to be pretty well set up to to be in that mix going forward, which is going to make the loss of all those draft picks sting a little bit less. And one thing moving Herder does as well is just give them a little bit more wiggle room financially in the coming years because they do have all this long-term money on the books and Herder was going to be one of them too. And in trading him, you know, Holiday and Mo Harkles aren't as good. Mo Harkles, yes. Mo Harkless. Holiday and Mo Harkless aren't as good as Herder, but they're also on expiring contracts. They got a protected future first out of it. Like there's more flexibility than there was with Herder on the roster. And they still do have, they don't have financial flexibility in terms of like the cap, but they do still have roster flexibility and maneuverability because 
between Collins' contract, um, between the youth and upside of Hunter and Okongwu, depending on you know how rivals value Capella's contract or maybe even Bogdanovich's with a year or mm. two left, there is still something they, like that can be done. If they really wanted to make another move or even a big splash, they could do something. It's not like, well, now they're just locked into this team for the next X amount of years. So I think they got, in my opinion, significantly better talent-wise. They're more balanced than they were before this deal. And they haven't really robbed themselves with the flexibility to do something else. So I don't really see how much you can argue with it from Atlanta's perspective. Straight up from a, like an aesthetic perspective or like just a, you know, my kind of interest in the sport of basketball perspective. I'm so excited to watch this team. Like I think Trey Young and DeJounte Murray is like the most interesting backcourt in the NBA right now. And it's kind of a, a yin yang of skill sets that, you know, it might not work as well as I think it will, but I'm interested to see them try to make it work and to see what it looks like. Dude, we literally could have said the exact same thing after the Gobert uh, Wolves thing, just talking about the front court. And that's yeah. what I'm saying. I think it's really interesting. I think the front court of Gobert and Towns, the back court of, of Trey and DeJounte Amore is going to be fun to watch whether you're a Hawks Wolves fan or not. It's going to be interesting. And I think that's good. And it's two mid-ish tier teams in non-traditional glamour markets kind of going for it. And that's good too. We kind of hinted at the Herder thing. I don't think we have to spend any time on that other than the fact Sacramento's going all in on offense. Bold strategy as they look to end the longest playoff drought in NBA history. Yeah. Not really going to say anything else about that. The last thing I do want to get to before we get out of here, Malcolm Brogdon going to the Celtics in a trade that sends Daniel Tice, Aaron Neesmith, Nick Stauskas, Malik Fitz, Jawan Morgan, and a 2023 first rounder to Indiana. In other words, the Celtics sacrifice maybe one rotation player and a likely late first rounder to add a player who, when healthy, has played like a fringe all-star yep. at times in his career. Now, when healthy, I will give you, is the kind of key phrase there. Brogdon has missed an average of 27.9 games per 82 contests over the last five seasons due to various injuries. Just say 28. You can't miss 0. Yeah. 0.9 of a game. Right. Okay, but th- there, there you go. 28. Basically, a third of a season. If you prorate for 82 games, yeah. on average, he's missed a third of the season over the last five years. So, when healthy, obviously the big caveat there. But... The, the Celtics basically added like a two-way stud to what's already a bonafide title contender that was already well-balanced. In addition to providing still defense at the point of attack, in a backcourt that also features the defensive player of the year right now in Marcus Smart, Brogdon brings, you know, the type of playmaking, rim pressure, creation, some offensive initiation that Smart couldn't always provide and that as improved as Smart was, people were still maybe looking at like, can they get it done with this guy as their point guard, lead initiative, whatever you want to call it. I think by adding Brogdon, easing that burden on and improving smart, what they can do together offensively, but also defensively. I think when you look at that backcourt now, beside, you know, the star wings and Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, with that really dynamic defensive front court of Robert Williams and Al Horford and Grant Williams, this is kind of perfect roster construction to me. I love this deal for Boston. Again, they gave up, you know, a, a very paltry sum to get it done when you consider maybe one rotation player in a late first rounder. Uh, from Indiana's perspective, clearly similar to what we were talking about with San Antonio. Did you know, by the way, Indiana, when they selected Benedict Matherin sixth overall in last week's draft, that was their first time having a top six pick since 1988. This team, and in a way to their credit, has always avoided 
tanking, whatever you want to call it, like fully bottoming out and still managed to build some really competitive, like contender type teams in the nineties and two thousands. So I think, I think they like San Antonio have now realized the way they need to go. If they truly ever want to get into title mix and get the type of star they need to get in the title mix. And so whether it's miles Turner, um, buddy healed, TJ McConnell, like insert veteran name that's still on the Pacers. I would not be surprised if one or all of those guys is gone by the time the season starts and they go all in on the youth movement. They yeah. build around Matherin and Tyrese Halliburton and Andrew Nembard and future picks that they hope, you know, with lottery luck turn into something else. Yeah. I mean, it's a good reminder that there is a way, like you can build contending teams from the middle. You know, you don't need to do the bottom up or the bottom out thing in order to, to kind of ascend uh, you know, to the upper echelon of the league. Like you can do it from the middle uh, and lots of teams have done it in the past, but I think it was smart for the Pacers to realize that that wasn't going to work for them this time. And I, I'm just still like, in spite of that realization, I just can't believe they couldn't get more for Brogdon. Like I understand the injury history would scare some teams off and he's got, you know, three years and 67 million, I think left on his deal. It- so a it contract. works out to an average of like $22.5 million a year. Yeah, which is like, you know, for a healthy Brogdon, 100% fair value. But I yeah, do... I'd say better than fair value when he's healthy. Yeah, So, but like I do understand if, okay, you know, if that's what he's worth or if he's worth slightly more than that for playing a full season, then, you know, what is he worth for the two-thirds of a season on average that he's given you, you know, over the last five years, like you mentioned? Um, I understand that. I'm still surprised because... You know, first of all, it's a 2023 pick from the Celtics, right? Like, they're going to be really good next year. This is going to be like a 25th or lower type of pick. That's very little for them to give up. I mean, like, the Sixers gave up the 23rd pick to get DeAnthony Melton. (laughs) And I loved that trade for the Sixers. And I really like DeAnthony Melton. But Brogdon is much better than Melton. And this is like that, you know, yes, okay, they gave up Aaron Neesmith as well, who they picked in the first round what, two years ago, three years ago now? Like, he's fine. Maybe he'll turn into something in Indiana where he just, like, has more room to grow, but I don't think he was going to have that room or become that player in Boston. So it's just a very low acquisition cost for a player who, I, you know, I agree with everything you said about how he fits. The one thing I'll push back on is you said two-way stud, and I think I, I, he's not that guy defensively. I think he's pretty overrated as a defender. I will say I'd p- call him average, but I think the important thing for Boston for a guard defensively. Yeah. About that. Maybe a little bit better, but like what makes him a little bit better than average to me is that he can kind of guard at an average level at like three positions. Less so at the one, like I think you want him guarding twos and threes more than you want him guarding point guards. But the point, and especially for Boston's purposes and like how much they like to switch and how versatile they want to be he has that positional flexibility defensively where, you know, he's not going to do it at an elite level, but he can very capably guard, you know, twos and threes and in some cases ones. So I think it works for them at that end, but definitely I think it's more geared towards offense. And that, as we saw in the finals and throughout the playoffs, that's where they need help. You know, like they, they didn't need any help defensively, but they needed a guy who, A, like how, how many times have we talked about how the Celtics need rim pressure? And somebody who can get to the basket. I mean, Malcolm Brogdon gives you that. Like, he is one of the best, strongest drivers in the league. He gives them that. He can play on or off the ball, uh, which is obviously something they need because they got a lot, a lot of mouths to feed. 
I think Smart will remain their kind of primary initiator. But like you say, uh, having a guy like Brogdon enter that mix just means less of that stuff on his plate. And now you, you're looking at like a really balanced offense, right? Where you can have, you're talking about four high-level ball handlers or creators in their starting lineup between smart, you know, sorry, I say high-level ball handlers. Let's say high-level creators because mm-hmm. we've seen the ball handling limitations with Jalen Brown especially. Yeah. But before high-level shot creators and smart, Brogdon, Tatum, Brown in the starting lineup with an elite defense, like, God, they're, they're going to be really, really tough. Yeah. And I just, I can't believe they got him while giving up so little, man. I, I really can't. Um, great move for the Celtics. Great fit. Yep. Uh, just going to, he's just going to help them organize themselves in, in a way that will hopefully prevent them from kicking the ball around and, and committing 22 turnovers in the last game of the season next yep. year. You know, like he'll, he'll give them a better chance to get over that hump, I think. I believe after the deal was done, the the Celtics actually moved to the odds-on favorite to win the title. Yeah, um, I think that which makes I think makes sense until we know what the KD situation, how yeah. that resolves itself, and if he ends up in Phoenix or whatnot. But uh, as it stands right now, we're recording this the morning of July second. Obviously, a lot of dust still set on free agency, but I'd say as it stands right now, based on the way rosters look right now, I would say the Celtics look like the best team to me after the Brogdon trade. Again, Same. a lot can still happen in the next few hours and days, let alone between now and October. Yeah. I I also just want to point out quickly, and in terms of like the offensive fit, Brogdon's last couple seasons in Milwaukee, he shot the lights out from three, you know, like, and I think he was like a 50, 40, 90 guy one year, like shot well over 40% from deep because he was getting the vast majority of those shots off of the catch. And his three-point percentage is really dragged down in... Indiana, like he was at 31% last year, uh, 33% two years ago, like not nearly at the same level because he had the ball in his hands so much more because he had to create those shots for himself. And I just don't think in Boston, he's going to have to do that. I think it's going to be more akin to the role he played in Milwaukee where he's off the ball more often and is getting more catch and shoots than pull-ups. So I think we could see him get back to the level where he's shooting around 40% from three, which is another thing the Celtics could really use. You know, three-point shooting was not their forte last year, and uh, I think he's going to help. Yep, and even when you consider the down year in Indiana, for his career, still a 37.6% three-point shooter on more than four attempts per game. So don't think anyone should be worried about the shooting. All right, 70, 75 minutes in. I think we we covered all that needed to be covered again with with respect to the trades that happened so far and uh, the unofficial start to the offseason before the moratorium lifts. We covered the Durant rumors and uh, we will be back next week to try to break down as best we can the actual free agency happenings. Uh, So if if there's something you think, why didn't they talk about that that went down in free agency? We will talk about it just on our next episode. Didn't have time to do that today. And again, Mm -hmm. maybe two episodes from now, depending on whether we're just breaking down a KD trade next episode uh before we go do you want to give a fan shout out you're gonna like this one wolfon uh don't worry no one calls you a fraud this time but <laughs> isaac olds who reached out on instagram you know what i didn't get where he's actually right now might be portland i know for portland must be at least his hometown because he did refer to the blazers as his hometown team at one point we'll get to that anyway the reason i think you're gonna like it is because uh, like me i know you are a seinfeld aficionado so isaac olds on instagram I went and checked his profile, and for un- under his profile name, he's got for his description, 
architect, marine biologist, importer, exporter, and then he's got a website and it's a link to artvandalayindustries.inc. So shout out Isaac for that great Instagram profile. Needs no explanation uh, for anyone listening to this who was a Seinfeld fan. Anyway, Isaac said he's been a loyal listener since the start of the 2020-2021 season and that uh, he loves the analysis. He says, even though as a casual fan, he doesn't always understand or isn't always sure about the specifics when we talk about certain like defensive tactics and schemes and things like that. He was asking if we can at one point in the summer maybe do like a breakdown episode of things like that. I think the better idea is just maybe if we get into the weeds when it comes to defensive schemes, it's just in the moment we explain what we're talking about. So we can just start trying to do that better rather than devote a whole episode to it. But we do appreciate uh, you reaching out, Isaac. Love the Seinfeld-related Instagram profile. He did also mention at one point that he was very much appreciative of Wolfon being optimistic on the Blazers before last year, before it got to the point where everyone realized Dame and CJ needed to be up. And when Isaac sent me this message a few weeks ago, he was talking about, you know, hoping the Blazers kind of figure their things out, whether it's rebuilding without Dame, doing something with them. We'll talk about it when we talk free agency, but I think for the most part, the Blazers have had a pretty fantastic offseason so far if their plan is to just continue building around Dame. Anyway, Isaac, thank you for the message. Thank you for being a loyal listener and the usual call out to all of our listeners right now, whether you're listening for the first or 251st time, reach out to us. Let us know where you're listening from, what you like about the show, maybe what you don't, and we will give you a shout out on a future episode because we appreciate our listeners tuning in and uh, allowing us to do what we do. So hit us up on Twitter at Joey underscore double Y-O-U at Joseph Cacharo. Email us joe.wolfon at thescore.com, joseph.cacharo at thescore.com. Find me on Instagram like Isaac did, joe underscore 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 cash. And uh, we'd love to hear from you, from you and get you a future shout out. Until then, for Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the rock.